So I have six goats, Ansel and Adams, because I'm a photographer, so that seemed fitting for my first two goats. They are all mini goats, but Dodger. That's who I got next, and he's a boar goat, uh, and he was gonna go in someone's freezer. He's a huge pain. <laughs> then I have Preston and Quincy. They're twins, and they're probably the most lovable goats I have. And then we have Annie, and Annie is the star of the show, and she's my logo. Everyone loves her because she was born at the farm, so I think they feel most bonded to her. My name is Lainey Morse, and I'm the founder of Goat Yoga, and this is my farm, No Regrets Farm. Farms give people that special feeling, like they're going back to the simple days. Even when you drive up, and you see the old house and the old barn, and it just is like, whoa, this is cool. So I'm glad to share it. Last year, I uh, ended up getting a divorce. Then in the new year, I was diagnosed with Sjogren's. Sjogren's is an autoimmune disease. It's basically where your immune system starts um, attacking its own cells. Just walking into work was really hard. And, you know, I'd get at my desk and just be like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to have to collect disability soon, you know, because I would just look forward every day to coming home. And the first thing I would do is come out in the barn and go sit out in the field. And, uh, you know, I walk out there and all the goats follow behind me and it just cracks me up. When they're all jumping around being crazy, it's just really hard to be depressed. The hardest thing about having a disease is getting in your own head. And if you get there and you don't have any distractions, you can get in trouble. And, you know, I live alone and so I have a lot of time in my head. So that's what I needed. I needed a goat distraction. <laughs> It's kind of when I'm by myself with them that it's the most therapeutic for me. But a friend asked me if I'd be interested in offering a kid's birthday party um, with the goats at the farm. One of the parents was a yoga instructor and uh, she's like, we should totally have a yoga class out here. This is perfect. And so we started promoting it as goat yoga. We really thought just our um, friends and family would show up because who does this? It was a sold out class. Goats are strolling around and it's just super peaceful. And uh, so we took it from there and started marketing goat yoga. How people are reacting is a huge part of my therapy. People from all over the United States sent me the most amazing things. There's a quilt in the back of the barn that I hung up and the lady sent me a note and just said, I've suffered from depression my whole life and if this makes anybody smile, that'll make me happy. And that gives me chills. I want people to come out here and experience this, whether it be vets that just got back from war or people with diseases or just people that are sad. You just have to say the name and people smile. <laughs> so, Really the most special thing is just watching their faces when a goat comes towards them and they get to snuggle, they lose their minds. <laughs>
Oh my gosh, Lainey. Uh, I know that this might be on the minds of some folks out there today. Um, goat yoga. Okay. Now, you explained it a little in the film, but what exactly is goat yoga? Uh, well, I get asked that question a lot. And, you know, it's, it's really just getting out in nature and bonding with an animal and getting a little exercise. And uh, I say it's part yoga, part animal-assisted therapy. And uh, I think it's catching on. <laughs> I think it's catching on when I text you a year or so ago and the Country Music Awards, Carrie Underwood is doing goat yoga and it's like, Lainey! And every time goat yoga pops up around the world or on television or in a movie, Lainey, she goes, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. So it just literally... In our conversations, you said literally overnight it blew up. What do you mean by that, and how did you handle that? Uh, you know, it, it's a little more difficult uh, than it seems. It was uh, a time in my life where I was really, it was a mess. I had just gotten a divorce. Um, I was diagnosed, uh, actually misdiagnosed with Sjogren's. I actually have rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but I was going through these physical changes. I used to be a runner, uh, did half marathons all the time, and all of a sudden I, I can't even do my hair anymore because it hurt too bad to lift my head up to do a straightener, or uh, I couldn't make it out to the barn to feed the goats, and I have to have friends come over and help me, and I just thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And <laughs> You know, goat yoga exploded at this time, and I was begging my doctor to put me on steroids to get me through media interviews. I was doing like 30 or 40 a day. New York Times was coming out, and People Magazine. I mean, it was just, it was the best thing in the world, but yet I was struggling so bad. And it was uh, the happy distractions in my life that uh, made it bearable, and um, you know, it, it just, it went viral and changed my life, and it, it's, it's been amazing. I love it. You did a goat yoga happy hour for us, and um, the women that went with me to that, we had never had so much fun in our lives. And how did you, and I know this is a pun on words, but how did you raise such good little kids and they love being with us and would love us and just run around and jump and frolic and do they, are goats naturally that way or did you have a hand in that? Well, you know, you, you raise things and you love them and every day, uh, just like it said in that video, I would come home from my corporate job and I would just go out in the barn and spend time with the goats and what it did, it, it distracted me from stress, from illness, uh, you know, it was impossible to think about anything else when I was around them. And I thought, you know, this is really what it's all about is it's finding that happy distraction that gets you out of your own head. And uh, for those of you who've suffered, you know, tragedy, which I'm sure we all have, um, it's really easy to get into your own head and spiral into this, you know, depression. And uh, it was because of my goats that it, it made it easy for me to just smile every day, even though, 
sometimes I couldn't even get out of bed or it was just, uh, you know, changing my clothes was just the hardest thing in the world. And I just thought, my life is over. And then something like this happens and you're like, well, I better get healthy real quick because, you know, I have to make this happen. And I think when you have your health taken away, you have a crazy tenacity to make something happen. And uh, that's the product of Goat Yoga. And it's a brand that makes people happy. People just look at the logo and they say, what is that? Or tell me about that. And, you know, it's really, it's about making people happy and smile. And uh, so that's what my focus is today. So you have the farm here in Oregon, but where are some of your other satellite goat mm -hmm. yoga? Is that, how do I say that? Uh, they're satellite locations, okay. and that happened because I was banned from doing goat yoga by our state, and uh, it's not allowed in the zoning that I live in. And so um, after I quit my job of 10 years to make this happen, uh, I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, I'll partner with other people who have goats and cool destinations, and they'll do the classes for me. I'll do the back-end marketing, social media, the stuff that I enjoy and that I know I'm good at, and uh, we'll make people happy together. And so now we have 16 locations all over the USA, and uh, we're in talks right now with someone from New Zealand, uh, Colombia, uh, Ireland, uh, to start uh, goat yoga there too. So we're hoping uh, it'll be an inter international endeavor soon. This is so exciting that you, and I know this, this isn't the exciting part that you've been banned because <laughs> you started this outside the Albany area mm -hmm. and it was just fine and you found this beautiful property and moved to this, oh my gosh, yeah. it looks like out of a storybook farm and land and then they said, goats, no. Yep. Why goats, no, horses, yes. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I did move to a new farm. Uh, now I live in Monroe. Uh, and I knew I wouldn't be able to do goat yoga there, but I thought maybe I can change the law. And so we've met with our senator, and she's on board to help us uh, change the wording to a bill. Instead of equine therapy, it'll be livestock therapy, uh, because they do allow equine therapy farms uh, in our zoning. So we're Fingers crossed, hoping, and so that we can open our farm and, you know, make it a therapy farm, um, which I'm dreaming of. And so it might not only be goat yoga, it could be goat happy hour, too, for those of you who don't like yoga. <laughs> you know, there is hope, and I believe anything is possible. And today we heard of a dream with conviction to become the next congresswoman yes. in this state. <laughs> Right now, she just has a little job running like schools yeah. and, you know, mm -hmm. different things like that. But you'll want to connect with Melissa. Yes. So that would be great. Huh, Melissa? This could you. <laughs> All right. So you alluded to it a few questions back. But what's your advice for other people that are going through hard times in their life? You know, um, it's... It's really difficult when you are going through a hard time to stay um, out of your head. And I guess that's the best way to put it because, you know, that voice in your head that's just saying, what if, what if you're never going to make it? What if you're never going to get well? 
Well, you have to disconnect from that and you have to find your happy distraction. And for me, it's the goats, it's my dogs, it's my pigs, it's my farm, it's nature. And it's connecting with that every single day. And so you need to find what you connect with, get out of your head and know that things can change uh, on a dime. And so, and I'm living proof of this, it was, you know, it's just been a crazy, it's only been three years uh, since this happened. And uh, since then, uh, you know, we have talks to be, have a reality TV show. Uh, we're meeting with a licensing agent to, you know, uh, start licensing to the brand for apparel and books and who knows what. So it's just, no dream is too big. And uh, yeah, and buy my book. <laughs> uh, speaking of books, I bought this book um, for a friend of mine. It is delightful. Um, I love this little goat yoga book. You also have a booth out here, don't you? If I people do, yeah. want to know more and about so the, goat the person yoga. that the goat was licking the head of is out there <laughs> selling the goat yoga swag. <laughs> I love it. So, a worldwide phenomena in less than three years. Anything truly is possible. We have time for one burning question from the audience and then the rest of your questions at the break. She'd love to talk with you. So, does anyone have a burning question about goat yoga for the international goat <laughs> yoga queen? Your health problems, oh, that's loud. Was it the yoga that helped you move past that and get into better health? Honestly, no. <laughs> it was the goats. Um, you know, I went through a misdiagnosis. Uh, they told me I had Sjogren's, and so I was on a chemo drug for three years and not really progressing and getting better. Um, and just a few months ago, uh, I found out I had a rheumatoid arthritis, and so they put me on some new medicine, and, and uh, today I feel like I have my life back. Um, I, I don't really feel anything that I felt back then, and um, it's just, it's really been a blessing. So I, I just got my physical health back, and so I haven't really been uh, exercising, uh, but I feel now that I can start walking and start walking faster and then maybe running again And that's kind of my first love even though goat yoga is my love, too um, But I, I want to be a runner again For those of you who want to know more about Lainey's journey goat yoga her book where she's going to next because there are a lot of wonderful things in the works Please connect with her and you'll be here all day, right? I will Ladies, give it up for Lainey Morris. Oh my gosh. I am on time, Missy. Put that card down. Oh dear father. Okay, we'll everyone gets a special sign, one minute and five minute. Mine has certain initials. We won't go into it right now, but it means, all right, put that down. All right, here we go. Six degrees of separation is the idea that all people are six or fewer connections away from each other. 
The speaker and I that you are about to hear next were separated by only one, her uncle. We were meeting in his office at Chemeketa Community College, and out of the blue, he said, have I told you about my niece, Layla? And the rest is girlfriend history in the making. Layla's nonprofit, The Light of Hope, was honored Oklahoma's nonprofit of the year this year. Ladies, you're in for a real treat. Please welcome to the stage Layla Freeman. Do I need this? I don't need that. You don't need I that. don't need that. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are you? As Bonnie said, my name is Layla Freeman, and I like to say that I am a miracle. Um, I shouldn't be standing on this stage right now. I should not be alive right now. Um, Oftentimes we, we go through things in our lives and we don't understand why and we look back after we've been through the journey and you see the why. So today I want to share with you, to begin with, my life journey. First of all, I want to do a little exercise with you guys. We walk through life struggling, we all do, it's a reality, it's a fact, but I want to just have each one of you Think of a word that describes the person to your right. We've had enough time to get, e get to know each other a little bit, so I want you to look at the person to your right, and if there's no one right there to your right, look left. <laughs> Just, yeah. And tell that person the word that you've thought of. Go ahead. And I hope it's nice. And Liz, I'm not down there, so you can give me mine later. <laughs> okay, so whatever the word is that you received, I would really like for you to hold that in your heart. Write it down. Remember it. Because when you go through a valley, I want you to remember the word that you were given. Because it's true. So I'm an only child. I was born in Libya in the middle of a revolution to amazing parents. My dad lives here in Salem, Oregon. He's an incredible man. I'm hoping he's here. I can't see a thing right now, so I hope he's here. He's never seen me speak. So this is emotional for me. Yeah. Spent a lot of my childhood, um, we, my dad's a petroleum engineer, so I had the opportunity to live overseas and um, be blessed by those experiences. Um, 13 years old, we moved back to Houston when I was a young teenager, and there was some difficulties going on in the home, so my mom and dad decided to separate for a little while. My mom and I came to Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
So I'm from Oklahoma, by the way. I flew all the way here to be with you guys. <laughs> Anyone else here from Oklahoma? Yay! I have one fellow patriot. <laughs> I love Oregon, though. We will retire here. So anyway, at 13 years old, we came to, my, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, stayed with my aunt for a while, just over the summer, and I had great experiences with my cousin. Now, 13 years old, you know, you do the things like you go biking, you go swimming, and all those things in the summer. One of the deals we did was we went roller skating. That was a thing back then. <laughs> so we'd go to the roller skating rink, and we went at least twice a week. So we got to know the people at the roller skating rink. My mom and my aunt would sit in the waiting area, and they'd read or visit while my cousins and I went skating. And we got to know the cute 16-year-old disc jockey. Yeah. I was flattered that somebody paid attention to me because I really didn't have much self-worth. I really struggled from an early age to have confidence in myself. I'm didn't really have close relationships with anyone because I was an only child. We moved quite a bit. So I struggled with identity. I struggled with self-image and self-worth. So when this 16-year-old disc jockey asked me if I could go grab a hamburger with him, I asked my mom and my aunt, and they gotten to know him, remember? So they said yes. So we get in the car. He had a red Firebird. That was even better. And we start driving, and it's pouring down rain. And I asked him to turn the windshield wipers on because he hadn't turned them on yet. And he looked at me, and he laughed. It was in that moment I knew I'd made a mistake. He kept driving and laughing, and then he proceeded to start fishtailing the car in the rain with no windshield wipers on. And I said, please stop. And he laughed. And then he drove me behind a warehouse, and he violated me. I had no knowledge of rape. I had no knowledge of sexual violation it wasn't a subject that needed to be brought up to me. I'd never been in a relationship. I was too young. So on the drive back, as he pulled up to the curb of the roller skating rink and I opened the door, I stepped my foot out onto the curb and I made a decision. Because I'd always struggled with worth I always struggled with trying to find a balance in my life. I didn't know how to even process this. And how in the world am I going to tell anyone about this because it's my fault? So I took that experience and I stuffed it way down deep inside. I put it away into what I call a shame box. How many of us understand what a shame box is? I think every one of us has it, but maybe haven't really identified it. 
So I proceeded in life, 16 years old, moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma with my mom. And it was spring break of my junior year, and I moved to this gigantic school where I knew one person, and that was my cousin who was in a younger grade. Traumatic experience, let me tell you. But I acclimated into the school and managed my way through. And during the summer between junior and senior year, I went to a church camp with my cousin, and I met a young man there. This young man's family knew my mom and her family, so that was a great thing, and we began dating. And it was a long-distance relationship. We lived an hour and a half away. We dated throughout senior year. Our relationship got serious. We got married when I was 20 years old. Now, I didn't pay attention to things in that relationship as we were dating because I'm still stuck on... I'm not worthy. I don't have much confidence. But this family was very wealthy, very well-to-do in society, had a very high social status, and I am somebody that is dating this man, and that must be important for him to like me because I was a nobody in my mind. So we began this marriage after... I didn't pay attention to the red flags, such as punching a hole in my mom's hallway and throwing me out of a car because I didn't put, I'd put mustard on my corn dog and I was told not to. So we entered into the marriage and three months into the marriage I had my first broken nose. He also decided immediately that we were going to have a child whether I wanted to or not. He threw my birth control pills in the trash and of course being fertile myrtle, I got pregnant right off the bat. So after one year of marriage, I had my first daughter, Ashley. The abuse, I don't know how to describe abuse. There's not really a word because there's so many facets of it. Emotional, physical, mental, all of it. But this kind of abuse when you have wealth involved and social status involved and a business that this family own and they put your name on the business, it's entrapment along with abuse. So there wasn't a, an easy way out. People often ask me, how come you just didn't leave? Well, you can't just leave those types of situations. Because now all my financial is involved in this relationship because my name is on everything. That's control. My children are involved in this. That's control. Because four years after I had Ashley, I had my daughter Savannah. I was completely controlled in every level. Controlled in my communication with anyone. Controlled in any... I didn't have money access. Controlled in everything I did. Everything I didn't do. And it was hard to explain it to anyone. But I had to wear a mask, just like I'd been wearing for many years. Wear the mask of false happiness. I'm okay. I'm fine. How many of us are fine? We know the acronym for that. But I continued to stay because I didn't have an option. 
12 years I lived in this, 12 long years. The last two years of our marriage, he knew I was trying really hard to figure out a way out. So they, be, they, being the family, created an idea they were going to expand their business. So to expand the business, they were going to start building homes in Colorado. So we moved to Colorado, and this is where things went to a different level. You see, my abuser is an alcoholic. My abuser is a sex addict and full of control issues. When we moved to Colorado, I became property and I became an investment. He would take the girls to school during the day. He would tie me up before I left, they left, and he would come home with men. I was used for profit and my mental status took another toll. I completely checked out I was in survival mode, and I cannot tell you how many times I ended up in a hospital for saying one wrong word. I didn't talk about it when I was able to talk about it to my family, because they can't do anything about it. Why would I give them that, that pain and that burden that they would have to carry knowing what's happening to me? That was my thought process. I did everything I did, could do to deflect any kind of abuse or situation from my girls knowing, but ultimately they were behind closed doors when they were home and they knew. So my entire existence in that last two years was to find a single way out. I didn't care what I did, I had to get out. He was such a severe level of abuse that I would continually have guns to my head, knives to my throat. If I didn't perform the acts I was supposed to be performing, then I, the gun would be here until I did it. So I knew that there were one or two things going to happen. I was either going to get out however I needed to get out, with or without my, my girls, or my girls would watch me be murdered. And I could not handle the thought of my girls watching that and living with that for the rest of their life. So I prayed. I didn't trust there was a God. I didn't know he existed because he hadn't helped me up to this point. But I remember one day on a Saturday when we were outside, very rare occasion, the area that we lived was a cabin in Colorado, north of Breckenridge, deep in the deep back on a gravel road and when I saw a Denver airport shuttle bus drive up that road I knew this was my moment I took off running to that bus and I jumped on and I begged the driver to drive and I'm sobbing and I'm weeping and I'm broken and I'm terrified because I know he's chasing me. Hour and a half drive to Denver Airport and I am a complete mess on this bus and not one person on that bus asked me if they could help me or console me or even hand me a tissue. I know that's a defining moment for me because I don't ever want anyone in my lifetime 
to, be, to feel that alone. I managed to get to the airport. My mom knew some friends who lived in Colorado. They drove there to get me. I remember running from bathroom to bathroom, payphone to payphone, trying to figure it out where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And somehow, and it's very foggy, somehow those people found me and they brought me to my mom who met me halfway and I managed my way back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I went into the shelter at Tulsa for a while, the women and children's shelter, and I prayed, God, if you're really there, just bring my girls back to me. Three months after I escaped, my youngest daughter, Savannah, was with her dad at a hotel downtown Denver. He put her down for a nap, and then he left. She was four years old, type 1 diabetic. She woke up in the middle of the night, and Dad wasn't there. So she went down to the lobby. Of course, he'd gone out. He'd gone out to party or do whatever he needed to do. The police came. DHS came. He came in at 3.30 in the morning. They took him into custody, but he did not... He did not uh, serve any charges. It's amazing how that happens. But DHS found my mom, who then knew where I was, and we were able to drive back to get my daughter, Savannah. So that was three months after I escaped. I had my youngest daughter back. Six months later, my older daughter, Ashley, returned home to me. So I began to know... Maybe there's God out there. Maybe he does know that I need some help. So at this point in my life, I just start focusing on what I can do to rebuild. I needed to get a job. I needed to be the caretaker, provider, and all these things. So I started working at an engineering firm in downtown Tulsa and began plugging into just being a mom, trying to fix the things that had been broken in our lives. I had great family support, and that was my focus. So I spent a long period of time working and doing the routine of single mom, and then I met my wonderful husband at the engineering firm I work at, and we began dating, and we marry, and I moved to Claremore, Oklahoma, where there I began plugging in the community and starting to get to know people, do some things. Now, we had our daughter, Tessa. She's 14 now. And then about a year after her birth, we started having some serious trauma in our lives. Within a three-month period, one after another after another, my oldest daughter almost died in a car accident. My baby, Tessa, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, so now I have two daughters type 1 diabetic, insulin dependent. Our house flooded. My mother-in-law died in my arms. And six weeks later, my father-in-law passed away from a broken heart. Three months, all that happened. Now, I'm the one that takes care of all the details. I've always been that, a little bit of a control freak. I have to work on that, I know. <laughs> but 
What happens when we have not dealt with past trauma and then we have trauma on top of trauma? My brain began doing something I didn't understand. I began having panic attacks. I'd never experienced this before. I began having nightmares. I couldn't sleep. And then I started having flashbacks that made no sense. My entire mental status broke down. And I couldn't explain it to anyone, and I didn't know how to handle it or what to do. So finally, I went to a doctor who put me on antidepressants, anxiety medication, and suggested I have a glass of wine at night. Yeah. Now, I drank before in that past marriage, but this was different. That concoction calmed my nerves. It took away the pain. I didn't know it, but it was numbing the trauma. And so within six months of that diagnosis of, or that prescription concoction, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I stopped functioning, absolutely stopped functioning. Fell apart, didn't care. Didn't care because I didn't care about me. I felt worthless, pointless, and like I was a nuisance to society and I was a problem to everyone. So I did everything that I could to eliminate myself. Suicide is not something I ever thought I would think of in my past, but this was real and I didn't want to be here anymore, so I did everything I could to eliminate me. Tried to drink myself completely to death. I have a husband who's an absolute angel because this man took the vows to the most extreme and he stood by me no matter what. I ran away, I locked myself in hotel rooms, trying to kill myself. He found me, I don't know how, but he saved me. And I went to my first rehab, 30 days in, I am doing a great job because I am a go-getter, successful person. I come out of that rehab with a star A+. Two weeks later, I relapse. We go through this cycle of counselors and people and not understanding what's happening. And finally, I get a hold of a counselor who starts identifying some of the things from way back in my past. It was at that moment where I see a beginning of a change. When you have suppressed trauma, it has to be processed through because it festers subconsciously and it, it just comes out in other ways. So I went to another rehab in Utah, a wonderful place, where they began a process of not only the substance abuse, the alcohol issue, but also the mental health treatment. Even when I came back home after that rehab, I still struggled because then they began a treatment called EMDR, which is really intense and very difficult. So every time you go through those traumatic procedures, it's like you're reliving the trauma experiences over and over again. And the details in my past are not easy to process through. So it was a lot of hard work and a lot of failure in it. 
But I kept pushing, and I kept pushing, and I finally made it through. And in, in the middle of all of that alcohol issue and all the mess, of course I had a DUI in the middle of that. Who doesn't when you have a substance abuse issue? So then I'm dealing with legal issues on, my, on that side as well. And I'm embarrassed and ashamed because I have a label now. So now I'm worthless. And now I also have a number. I didn't know if I was ever going to make anything out of my life, but I kept looking at my daughters and seeing the solid commitment of my husband, and that's what kept pushing me forward. And along the way, I began to develop a spiritual strength because I couldn't do it myself. I realized that I am not in control. I tried my whole life to be in control, but I know now I'm not in control. And if I try to rely on someone who is in control of me, then maybe I can make it through. So I kept pushing and I kept pushing and I kept pushing. And life began balancing out. The substance abuse issue fell away, completely away. I know that's a gift because it's not normal. Because most people have cravings and still have issues with it. But for me, it's never been an issue anymore. I celebrate 10 years of sobriety on the 30th of this month. And that's not a brag, that's just to show it's possible because substance abuse is real and sometimes people don't think it's possible. But life kept going and I decided, okay, I'm doing better, I'm going to start plugging in because it's not about me, it's about helping others as well along the journey. So I started serving at a women and children's shelter in my community and I became like the committee leader person because I love control, here we go again. <laughs> And I was in charge of that, and then I had a pastor at my church say, why don't you try to start doing some one-on-one -on -one assistance with people called Stephen Ministry? And so I became trained as a Stephen Minister, which is like one-on-one -on -one spiritual encouragement for people. And then the church asked me to become a congregational minister, and then a congregational minister leader. And then they asked me to go to lay speaking school. And I thought, hi, you're so funny. I'm never speaking in front of people. <laughs> I remember in college being in speech, and I would, I would shake, like terrifyingly shake. I barely made it through that class. But it was training. It was something I didn't understand why I was doing this at the time, but now I look back and I see it. So all this stuff that I'm doing, I'm working very hard at my life, and I'm serving in the community, I'm doing things that are important, but behind our closed doors in our home, we have another issue. My daughter at 16 years old, Ashley, all of a sudden she's looking really skinny. She's reclused into her room, and behavior starts changing. So as mom, what do we do? I start digging. And I find in her closet a backpack that had marijuana and pills. My heart was broken because, see, I'd tried really hard to fix everything. The past was the past, right? We're starting over a new future. It's been years since we've been in that. 
but my daughter internalized like I used to. So I tried getting her into counseling and doing all those things that we need to do. When I found that initial uh, pills and marijuana, I had a neighbor who's an undercover narcotics detective. So I called him up and he had me bring her into the station and we did the scare tactic, took her behind the steel doors and all that stuff thinking it might help. It didn't help. It was a long road. When you're a parent and you have a child who's beginning to dabble in drugs, you'll do anything possible to stop that behavior. So we became that strict, stringent, on the top of it, gonna take control of this parent. But when a child or a person with a substance issue wants a drug, they will do anything they can to get it. Doesn't matter who you are or what's standing in their way. And it became a battle, a huge battle. And we only had a year and a half window when I found out she was using till she turned 18 years old. 18 years old. It's a nightmare for someone, a parent who's watching their child use because you lose control. You cannot make them do anything anymore. You can't put them in a rehab. You can't get them into different facilities because they're an adult and they make adult decisions. So you do all you can on the sideline. We spent seven years fighting, fighting, fighting for her. The up and down roller coaster, the unknown, the terrifying phone calls that you get in the middle of the night the hospital visits, the arrests, please arrest her. What parent ever wants to be on their knees praying for their child to be arrested? I was there, begging. Because when they're arrested and they're in jail, they're safe. They have a roof over their head, they're fed, and they're not using drugs. They're still alive. So we went through this for seven years. On December 23rd of 2013, I got a phone call again from the hospital. They have Ashley. She's been brought in. You need to come here. So I head that way. I'd been in Tulsa, which is about 40 minutes away from that hospital. I'd been Christmas shopping because it was Christmas. So I start driving towards that hospital. Halfway there, I get another phone call from the hospital, and they say, she's in too serious of condition. We cannot keep her here. We're going to be life-flighting her to Tulsa. So when I heard that, something changed in me. Instead of turning around to go to that hospital immediately, I went on home to get my phone chargers, my glasses, those things that you knew you needed in a hospital for a long period of time. There was something different. I ran home, grabbed those things, and then went back to Tulsa. I walk into the intensive care unit, and the first thing the, the doctor says to me, her kidneys are failing. And they said it in such a curt way, it made me angry. But what the doctor was saying was this patient that came in here 
who's full of all of these different concoction of drugs. And the doctor was angry that that person chose to do that to themselves. I see that now, but at the time it was tough. I began praying over my daughter. Family began coming. We just kept waiting. Nothing really changed. It was all kind of stable. And then she started going downhill. There's no way to prepare for those moments. I prayed over her. There was no consciousness. I never got to have another conversation. The only thing I received from her was a single tear that ran down her cheek when I was asking her to receive Jesus. The doctors called us out into the hallway. They asked me to sign the DNR papers, do not resuscitate, in case. As a parent, you do not want to ever have to sign those papers. It's like signing your child's life away. But the flip side was, if she stayed alive, she would have been brain dead at that point and only on machines. So I signed the paper. Two hours after that, on Christmas Eve, we lost her. I'd like you to meet my daughter, Ashley.
what do you do with a pain like that? There are no words to describe child loss. There's not a definition that can fit the emotions that go along with it. It's a pain so deep and so real every single day. You never go a day without thinking about them. You never go a day without wondering what they would be today. She would turn 30 on her next birthday. So I had to make a decision. You know, everyone around me was wondering, oh my word, what's going to happen to Layla? And the first thing I know they were thinking of is, is she going to relapse? That was the last thing from my mind. I had to do something. I had to do something beyond just moving on into regular life. But I had no idea what it looked like. I'm an author. I've been writing for years. I'd been writing an online blog. I'd been sharing my word with a lot of people. And my faith had grown deeper and deeper even before Ashley's death. But when she passed away, it went to a different level. So I began on a mission of inspiring others. And I began a mission of vulnerability. Because I'd worn a mask for so many years. Even in recovery, I still wore a mask out in the community. Nobody's going to know about what's really happened to me or who I am. But after this, it was different. My family stood beside me. It wasn't easy for them because when I started unveiling the truth and sharing who I was, what I had been through, all of my mistakes, my brokenness, my patheticness, it was a reflection of them as well. So it was not an easy road. But the more I started talking about it, the more the world started reaching out. My Facebook blog, Layla's Light, was nationwide. I had people that would write me their entire life story in Messenger. They would tell me everything. They would call. They would, it was amazing. It was, it was like sharing one little piece of me, and that was just the beginning, just a little revealing, opened up a whole nother conversation. And that's when I realized we all need to hear the truth. We don't need the mask. We don't need the falsities and the pretend world. We need the truth. We need to know that there's other people out there who are facing the same thing. And it's hard. I started what's called Light of Hope, as you see up here. It's a nonprofit ministry. I started with it just to be a place mainly for parents to go to, a group that was different than anything else. We've got AA, NA, Celebrate Recovery, all those recovery groups, but where do we go to really just vomit out the truth? And that's what we did. An hour and a half. We sit there and we tell the truth. And sometimes people come in and say, I just come in here to listen. There's not been one single person that's come in and just listened. <laughs> when they start hearing somebody else is going through the same thing and they're not crazy, they start talking. And those groups started in a coffee shop 
We're in our fourth year now. We started with the small groups. Then we expanded to anyone is welcome, not just family. The individuals who are struggling with addiction or life difficulty started joining us. And we grew and we grew. We opened our location in one city, Claremore. And then we opened a location in another city, Catoosa. And the groups have just grown and grown. And people started coming that were on probation. And then they would go back to their probation officer and the DA's office, and they would tell them about this group. They were getting more out of that group than other places. Can I get credit for being there? Because when you're on probation for a drug or an alcohol charge, you're required to go to a certain amount of groups. So then the DA's office called me in, and they wanted to know what I was doing and the, and the subject matter we were covering or not covering. So they began court ordering people to my group. They saw such success with the simple fact of being real that we began also doing more in our community together. So I have a partnership that's very exclusive and unique with the DA's office. We have created a monthly speaking panel called Addiction's Awful Truth, where people come and they give their testimony of their life, where they were and where they are now. Regular people come in front of a group that is now court mandated by the judges that they have to attend six months of this in order to receive a certificate at the end. The same kind of variable as if you get a DUI, you have to go to a victim's impact panel. We're doing the same thing for addiction. And then we began analyzing, we can't just stop at these groups. Life continues to go on after you walk out the door. Who's helping them then? So that created more programming for Light of Hope. We began working on how are they going to get back into the workplace. If you have a legal record, it's difficult to get a job, right? So we began helping them get jobs. We went out to all the people in the workforce, all the employers, sharing with them. If they give these people a second chance, look what can happen. We will rebuild our community. Workplace readiness, huge thing. Then I was invited to be a part of the North, Northeast Oklahoma Workforce Development Board because I do have a real business as well. <laughs> and that created more programming for them. And then the children. What's happening with our children? Who's teaching these children what they need to know in order to face life? We don't have very good programming in our schools in Oklahoma as far as drug education, mental health education. So I began a partnership with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Let's just go to the top. <laughs> we now take in, we're the only ones in Oklahoma allowed to use their curriculum, the DEA curriculum, and we are going in all the schools and we are teaching elementary, middle school, and high school curriculum. We go in for five to seven weeks. We start out with an assembly, and we go in and we teach these kids once a week details about what it means to do drugs. What does it do to your body? It's not don't do drugs. It's why and how does this affect you? We also talk about vaping and marijuana and all those issues that we're dealing with today. And I'm telling you all of this because I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be on this stage according to what I've done in my past. 
But somehow, you can take the brokenness that you've faced in your life, you can take the mistakes that you've unfortunately made, and you can turn them around. Because you're worthy, you're valuable, and you have a purpose. And you may not even understand the purpose, but if you will allow yourself to think bigger, dream bigger, that's what our big goal is today, is to motivate you to think beyond what you... Think beyond that line that we create around ourselves. Think beyond that. We can do things that we never dreamed possible because we have other people walking alongside us. It's a beautiful journey to know that you can, you can stand before people and you can have hope written all around. Light of hope is a word that anyone can take in their lives and do something with it. No matter what darkness we've walked through, no matter what you might be going through right now, there's a light. Allow other people to walk alongside you so you're not alone. We, in, we tend to recluse and, and hold it all in when we're walking through that difficulty, but we need each other more than we need anything else in those moments of darkness. It's an incredible thing to know that Ashley's memory is always alive because today I'm able to use that brokenness and help other families. My goal is to empower children, individuals, and families, the entire circle of recovery and help them to know that there's a better community and a better way of life. We're facing in our world the world of opioid epidemic. It's at a pillar level right now. And it's, it's really shocking how many people don't realize how bad it is. But I can tell you, most everyone in here, if not 100%, knows someone struggling with addiction. We've got to work together to help each other out. There's not shame involved in that. There's not shame in any of the things that you might have experienced in your life. And it's time to take that shame box that I mentioned earlier and begin lifting it out and opening it up and emptying it out. One piece at a time. Empty your shame box. Because you never need to hold that in. Use those experiences to do something to help others and to be a light in this world. I'm so thankful. You guys are amazing, and I can't believe I ended right on time. <laughs> God bless you.
Thank you for blessing us here today. Thank you. I love you. I love you. Well, okay then. Is this like running down my face? I had a lot of spack, a lot of spackle put on me this morning. And <laughs> if I need a tissue or something, um, you need to fix me up. Oh, thank you, Dan. What would I do without you? Big applause for Dan. Oh. Ah. Okay. Thank you, Layla. If you can dream it, you can do it. This was a famous Disney quote that applies perfectly to our fitness maven, Clarissa Evans. With big dreams of someday owning her own yoga and fitness studio, this spring she celebrated the second year of Revive Well Studio near Pioneer Place in downtown Portland. Clarissa led the morning yoga session. How many of you were there? Did you love it? Yes. She led that morning yoga session and introduced a special guest new to us this year, Dr. Zora Campbell. Where are you, Zora? Yay, thank you for being here. Zora guided the group in, a, in setting a positive intention for the day at the end of that session. Ladies, I don't know about you, but I've been a little chilly this afternoon and morning. Yeah? Okay, well, it's time to take five. Welcome to the stage, Clarissa Evans. Okay. Oh, there you, oh, you're bringing a friend. Yeah, I have this, this you prop. Have it, you have this a prop. This is my prop, yeah. yeah. All right, Clarissa. <laughs> Hi, ladies. Wow, okay, I'm kind of emotional from that. Um, my name is Clarissa, and I own a fitness studio in downtown Portland. I'm a movement trainer and health coach, and I love what I do. And what I love about it is helping you all, women specifically, to feel amazing in your bodies. Um, this is my passion to help you discover what kind of movements bring you alive. Because everyone has a different kind of interest and a different way of moving their body that helps bring out their fuller self. And we've really been working on discovering that today. So we're going to keep working on that with some movement today. Um, and I want to maybe tagline off of Layla just a little bit here for a moment. I opened my studio and called it Revive Well because I had a similar thought process as what she was saying about where are we most vulnerable and able to sort of bring our full selves. And it's these strange places where we're able to just be in recovery together and just sharing our full experience and being fully present. And I want people to be able to experience that fullness and that presence and aliveness in their bodies through movement. So I opened Revive Well, and we're going to try to revive you all today and um, just find a type of movement that feels good and that helps you sort of explore your own power and bring that to life today. So everybody stand up. Here we go. Okay. We've been sitting. We ate. We're going to stretch a little. You're going to need some room, so let's push the chairs into the tables. I got mine. Okay, so we're stretching together because I feel like when I move, I can like, 
understand stuff in my brain, like it internalizes in my body better, and it just feels good. So hopefully you all can feel good today. That's my goal here. So let's just start. Make sure you've got room. We're going to take a big, deep breath in and stretch. Everybody's in. Yeah, we're stretching. We're stretching. And we're going to grab one hand and pull it and stretch <sighs> and just let some air out. We've been sitting. We're going to go to the other side. Stretch. Oh, yeah. And shake it out. Like, feel alive right now, okay? Are we there? Are we alive? We're going to get our neck kind of stretched out because we've been stiff. We've been looking at the screen. Pull down. Stretch the neck. And the other side. And don't, don't worry about everybody around you. The hair is like doing weird things. The high heels. My next couple stretches, hopefully you are not wearing a mini skirt. If you are, I, I apologize. But we're just going to get comfy together. Okay, so you got your chair, your prop. Here we go. This is going to feel so good. You're going to grab onto the back of your chair, and we're going to back it up. <laughs> and if you need to do a little wiggle or whatever, go for it. Everybody in position. And I want you to take some big, deep breaths and let it go. <sighs> Breathe in. Oh, yes, stretch out that back, push the booty out, it feels good. Last breath, loving the laughter, that's what it's all about. And then come up carefully, again, sorry for the mini skirts, we're going to see if we can just kind of, oh yeah, oh yeah, everybody's in it, we're stretching, oh yes, yes. Thank you, ladies, for getting in on this. Nice. Okay, go ahead and stand up. Last pose. You are amazing. I want you to feel your body right now. You're alive. We are going to do star pose together. If you've never done yoga, congratulations, you're doing yoga today. We're going to do star pose. First, you put your right hand up, and then your left hand up, and you make a star. You reach, and I really want you to stretch. Like, stretch as big as you possibly can. Who cares about the pits? Who cares about the hair? Stretch. Big stretch. Star pose. You are amazing. Thank you very much. Nice job, guys. <laughs> okay, everybody take a seat. We're going to breathe just a little bit before the next section of the day. Get comfy. <sighs> Hopefully you feel a little bit more in yourself present, available. We're going to do a little bit of internal work and kind of shut down for a moment and just kind of go personal. We have so much magic in this room today. These speakers have been incredible, and I want us to just like pause and just relish in it and make sure that we really savor this moment and everything we're getting out of this day. So just relax and let your eyes close. And take some deep breaths, just like we did with Carmen. Shoulders up, shoulders down. We're just going to be present for a second. Slow things down. We've had so much information, so much emotion, so many amazing things happening today. And I just want you to be still for a second so you can absorb how freaking awesome today is. And I want you to clear your head and prepare yourself in whatever way you need to for the next few speakers and the next few hours so that you can totally get out of today what you want. This is your day. You came all the way here. 
you made time, you made space. I want you to make the most of this. So you get to decide what that looks like, what you want from this day. And I want you to go get it. Take one more nice deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. That's all I got for you ladies. I hope you feel really good. We're going to enjoy the rest of the day together. Thank you. Put that chair down, Missy. <laughs> Isn't she amazing? <laughs> ladies, Clarissa Evans. Thank you. You're amazing. Thanks, love. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Appreciate okay. you. Oh. Wow. I never looked like that in my yoga pants. I think that's why they made really long shirts, so I can say, look down here. Doesn't that look great? Oh, look who we have. (gasps) You have one more basket, Leanne, with Columbia Bank. Yay. All right, who feels lucky this afternoon? Let's hear your name. That worked last time for someone, so say your name out loud. Yes, say your name out loud. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. Bonnie oh. Maletto, Bonnie Maletto. My name's Let's see, not in let's there. see. Yes, it's wine. That <laughs> would be good. Okay, another wine basket for Columbia Bank. Oops, I have what? two. Let me grab the first one. Oh, there's another one, but oh, there's this one. <laughs> Brooke Goldsby. Brooke Goldsby. Oh, my gosh, All right. Brooke. Yay. Hey, Brookie. Leanne, well, that basket is about as big as you, Brooke. On behalf of myself, um, well, let me, let me turn my back to the audience, and um, the amazing new conference, please, you are the ambassador of Columbia Bank. Thank you for supporting us. Leanne Cowles. Oh, Wow. I still have a little bit of a runny nose, so um, it must be the weather. What do you think? It will be two years this coming February when the next speaker was brought into my life. I was a keynote speaker at the Government Meeting Planners Conference in Bend with her husband, Brian Flannery. He was the speaker before me. When the conference was over, a group of us met to debrief, and after sharing a few stories, Brian, with people around, looked right at me and said, Bonnie, you would love my wife. Okay, then. I want to hear about your wife. Ladies, I will say this. We all want our men to talk about us in the way he spoke of Liz. And then he pulled up a picture on his phone, and all I could say was, wow. So Liz and I met for coffee, and I was intrigued by her stories, her intelligence, and her love for life. Liz is also the director for the forensic department for the Oregon State Police, so if anyone at your workplace, if you're missing some sandwiches, she can come in and find them with that fingerprint stuff like CSI. (laughs) I'm just saying. Liz 
is the woman to call. Ladies, please welcome to the stage my friend, Liz Flannery. I don't know about you, Bonnie, but um, I was kind of missing some tissue at the center of that table. I can't tell you what a privilege it is to be here today and to be a part of this group. I work for the Oregon State Police and I oversee the latent print and fingerprint sections and the trace section of the laboratory. My job deals in human tragedy. I'm a forensic scientist. My job is to help solve crime. I see the worst of the worst. I see what humans are capable of, and it breaks my heart. Truly, to my very core, it breaks my heart to see some of the things that happen in this world. Tragedy is darkness. I don't think there's a better word to describe that. It is the absence of light in this world. And today I want to talk to you about what happens when light reaches into that darkness. And what does that look like for us? About a year ago, I was in my car, driving to work, listening to a podcast. You may have heard of it. It's called Reboot. And in this podcast, they were talk talking about a man named Parker Palmer. He's an educator, a coach, a leader. And he describes this thing that was a wow moment for me personally. And today I want to talk about how that plays out in my life, because I know each one of us has a unique story. Parker Palmer talks about what the world could be and what it is, and there's a gap between those two things. I was like, wow, I love this. And he calls that gap the tragic gap. Why is that tragic? Because it's dark. It's a place that is scary to stand in, to be a part of, because it requires us to stretch and grow as human beings. As I thought about this more, I was like, you know what? I think the real tragedy is that there are so many people in our world that don't live to their full potential because it's scary. It's scary to stand up on this stage in front of all these amazing women and talk about how I see the world. But I'm hopeful that by doing that, by stretching my abilities and feeling uncomfortable, that you may all take something from that. That you may say, oh, the way she said that, I understand that. I understand what it's like to stretch beyond what I'm comfortable with by talking about darkness and how that exists and how as a human, we actually can create light by being who we were meant to be. 
the greatest tragedy is that you choose not to be. The greatest tragedy is that people choose to not shine bright, to say, that's a little bit too much of a stretch for me. I don't feel comfortable. Okay, that's okay. But what can you do? You can take one step into who you are and be proud of that every day, maybe once a year, maybe every 10 years. Whatever that looks like for you, it's a step. It's a step towards allowing you to shine brighter, to show up. And guess what? You are good enough to do that. You are amazing, and you can bring what you have to this world. It's a gift. You've been given a gift, and you've got to let it shine, girl. You've got to let it shine. Because if we don't, that tragic gap, it gets bigger. Instead of filling in with people that are willing to stand in that darkness and shine their light. I have an amazing husband. <laughs> and he has been a huge piece of my journey in my own self-growth and my ability to stand in a tragic gap. Because in my work, it's easy to say, the world is dark, it is what it is. But the truth is, that's just motivated me to do more, to make me reach out into my community, to come talk at a women's conference, even though I'm like, yeah, that's, ah, that's a big deal. I have to think about what I'm going to say, and I have to practice, and I have to be in front of people. I've learned so much in the last three years about what I'm capable of. I've surprised myself. You don't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to be, you know, the congresswoman. But you can take a baby step towards that by connecting with people, by communicating with people. The power of communication, oh my gosh, you learn so much about people. They inspire you. They make you better by hearing their stories. I think, for me, the journey into the gap really came down to three things. The first is, don't ever apologize for who you are. You can be loud, you can be goofy, you can wear sweatpants up on a stage, you can do whatever you want, because you're you, and you should always be true to you no matter what, no matter how hard that is. Because it's so much easier to wear a mask and say, no, no, I had everything handled this morning when my kids were driving me crazy, and that one pair of pants, that just wouldn't do. And we had to find the other green shoe that I wanted to wear with my black shoe. When I show up and I've had that kind of day, it's tough. But I'm honest about it. I'm like, yep, I had a rough morning today. It was tough but I'm honest about it. And you know what? That just shows people, oh, the struggle's real, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> the second thing for me has been a growth mindset. I'm always willing to push myself beyond what I'm comfortable with. 
I'm always gonna challenge myself to try harder. I'm always gonna reevaluate that moment when I said something that I hadn't thought all the way through. You can always be better. You can always take a deep breath and swing for the fences tomorrow. But the challenge is to get up even when you don't want to. Even when you're like, no, I screwed that up. No, it's gonna be so much easier if I just lay in bed right now. Yeah, it is. But you know what? You don't grow when you do that. I think the final one for me is recognizing your gifts and recognizing that everything you've been given in your life is amazing. It really is. Most of the time, we don't even see it in ourselves, and sometimes we need others to show it to us. Friends, community, they're the ones that are helping you see how you contribute and encourage you. Encouragement is such a big deal because I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we women like to support other people. We love to support others. But the greatest form of self-respect is committing to yourself and following through on your own goals. It's absolutely wonderful to have the support of community, but the biggest player in that move is yourself. You need to have enough faith in yourself to take that first step, to take that first class, to say those first words of courage about how something hurts you or how something is challenging for you. Because I guarantee you there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that somebody else is going through that challenge. And community is about sharing in those challenges together. The greatest way to destroy that tragic gap is for all of us to stand together within that gap and allow our lights to shine the brightest that they can be. Please, every day you have a choice to get up and to shine, shine so bright. You owe it to yourself and filling that tragic gap of the community to get up every morning and say, I am going to help bridge that gap. I am going to be the best me I can be today. Thank you so much. <laughs> Girlfriend, you did it. I did. Remember when we were having coffee a couple of years ago, you look at me when I said, I think you should speak to the women. It was one of horror and shock. <laughs> yes. And look at you now. Yes. So what has been your journey over the past year and a half, I would say, of I can do this, I've got this? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is to step into that discomfort, to recognize that sometimes you just have to do it afraid. <laughs> You just have to say, yeah, those butterflies are not going to go away. I just need to stand there and be Britney Spears with the mic, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Liz, you're our new forensic expert badass. Liz Flannery. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. We have given away all of our door prizes, but before we take a break, and you're going to get longer than 30 minutes because at 3.30, oh, or when you hear that music, that's only about three and a half minutes this time. We'll start right at 3.30. You don't want to miss what we have in store for you, and then we're going to wrap it up. So this is a video that I found that I fell in love with. And when I go out and work with schools or youth, I would take this video and I would say, be your own hero. You've got to do it for you. It doesn't matter where we come from. What matters is showing up right now and where you decide where you're going. And then I had some workforce conferences and some adult conferences. And when they asked me to come and speak, they're going to get me. I show up and I like to have fun. And so I brought this video with me and I would um, show it. And then the adults and the state offices would call me and say, can you please send me that video? I'd like to show that at a staff meeting. It's just a fun, feel-good, but the words are real. After it is over, let's break. We'll see you back here, and we'll begin right at 3.30.
Hyped up, look at us go. We can shoot for the stars. Gonna start a parade. See the future is ours. It's a beautiful day. We did it all on our own. So 